0: Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic, Jacksonville, and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Patrick Kemeth from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Today we'll discuss his recent ACG Clinical Guideline. Disorders of the Hepatic and Mesenteric Circulation, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in the January 2020 issue. Patrick, welcome. What I want to start off by saying is, wow, this is an amazing article, and it was clearly a labor of love and a large amount of work. Tell us what led to the production of this guideline. Why now? Thank you so much, Brian,
1: for inviting me to discuss this guidance document. First of all, It was a team effort, and I really had a lot of help from the co-authors. Now, when we look at these vascular disorders, they're very important clinically because they can lead to acute liver failure. They can lead to portal hypertension, cirrhosis, and in patients with bud Carey syndrome, you can even get hepatocellular carcinoma. Also, these disorders are actually quite common in clinical practice, and you might find these abnormalities as a chance finding on imaging. So we thought it's really very important for clinicians, and that's hepatologists, gastroenterologists, and probably even the general practitioner to get some expert guidance in managing
0: these patients. One of the things you mention in your article is the deficit in liver-derived procoagulant factors in patients with cirrhosis. And you also mentioned the deficit of liver-derived anticoagulants in these patients. Could you briefly summarize these two deficits and how these deficits translate into clinical practice issues? So the liver produces coagulation factors. So we know these as the intrinsic
1: and extrinsic pathway. And if you have a decrease in the coagulation factor, then there's an increased risk of bleeding. And we traditionally measure the INR. And that's the only factor that we are measuring in these patients. But the liver also produces protein C, protein S, and antithrombin, and these are the coagulation inhibitors. So if these are reduced, there's an increased risk of clotting. So there have been studies done looking at factor II, which is the main procoagulant, and that is reduced. But protein C, which is the main anticoagulant, is decreased even further. So, you really have very low inhibitors of coagulation. So, this sets the stage for an increased clotting risk. In addition, patients with cirrhosis have endothelial dry factors. So, factor VIII and von Willebrand's factor are actually much increased. So, this further increases the clotting risk. So, in summary there's a higher risk of clotting in patients with cirrhosis than there is a risk of bleeding. Unfortunately, tests pick up only the bleeding risk, and we are not looking at the clotting risk. And that's why there has been this perception for years that cirrhosis is a bleeding disorder. In fact, it's more likely
0: a clotting disorder. Thinking a little bit in the past, many of our listeners were probably taught to infuse fresh-frozen plasma in patients with cirrhosis to minimize the risk of bleeding, but your guidelines now make a good point for why this is not a good practice any longer. Can you educate our listeners on the physiology of this? Previously the prothrombin time was measured and
1: you know for the, for the past about 20 years it's the INR which is the international normalized ratio for prothrombin time. This test is really best for monitoring patients on anticoagulation. Otherwise, it tells us what liver function is. It's really not a very good test for determining bleeding risk. So first problem here is the test that we're using does not tell us what the bleeding risk is. So it may be prolonged, and yet the bleeding risk is not increased. The second is the practical issue. It's very difficult to correct the INR. So the conventional doses of fresh frozen plasma are 10 milliliters per kilogram. And with this level of plasma, you cannot bring the INR level down to, say, less than 1.5 or so. If you really want to bring the INR down, then you have to give a huge volume of fresh frozen plasma, typically about 2 liters. So with this large volume, this volume expansion, that increases portal pressure, and that increases the risk of variceal hemorrhage. So actually, infusion of plasma prophylactically may increase the bleeding risk, and the benefits certainly outweigh the risks. There are a few situations where we might recommend this be carried out in patients who are going to surgery, for instance, but otherwise we do not recommend correction of prolonged INR with fresh frozen plasma. Paracentesis has been carried out in patients with markedly prolonged INR without an increased bleeding risk. So if they don't have sepsis and if they don't have renal failure, if the INR is prolonged, I think it's okay
0: to go ahead with doing a paracentesis. That's great. This is uh, an important reason why we have these clinical guidelines to change clinical care. Following up on that, when you mentioned paracentesis, another common practice in the past was to transfuse platelets before variceal banding or before paracentesis. Once again, the guidelines now recommend against doing this. Can you tell us why the practice guidelines have changed and why platelet transfusions are no longer required? So in patients with cirrhosis, there's a quantitative decrease in platelets,
1: and there's also qualitative decrease in platelet function. Qualitative platelet dysfunction is not common with cirrhosis alone, but certainly occurs in the presence of sepsis and renal failure. So thrombocytopenia in the presence of sepsis and renal failure is different from thrombocytopenia in the absence of sepsis and renal failure. In the absence of sepsis and renal failure, like I said, thrombocytopenia is related to hypersplenism most commonly and occasionally decreased thrombopoietin. These platelets are functionally normal and when you really need these platelets, the spleen is able to squeeze out more platelets. So, again, platelet replacement is not required. If a major procedure is being carried out, then platelet counts of greater than 50,000 are required. If the platelets are lower than that and the patient has renal failure, for instance, or if the patient has sepsis, yes, that is likely to give an increased bleeding risk. And in those situations, you may recommend platelet transfusions. If a patient is going to have, say, a large polyp removed, if the patient is going to have a sphincterotomy or if the patient is undergoing major surgery, we would recommend increasing the platelets to greater than 50,000, and this may require large amounts of platelet infusions, but we would suggest that if the procedure is elective, then thrombopoietin agonists be used to
0: raise the platelets in time for the surgery. Thinking about another clinical situation, clinicians are frequently faced with a patient who may have an acute portal vein thrombosis or mesenteric vein thrombosis. What is the best initial imaging study for these types of patients? And if that study is not conclusive, what would be the next best test?
1: So we would like to divide patients into those with cirrhosis and those without cirrhosis. With cirrhosis, these portal and mesentric vein thrombosis is picked up while they are being screened for hepatocellular carcinoma, so often it is incidentally picked up. If we demonstrate on ultrasound, a patient has portal vein thrombosis, confirmation is on cross-sectional imaging, typically a CT scan or an MRI. Deciding between a CT scan and MRI depends on availability, of the investigation and the cost. Typically, CT scans are much easier to obtain and they're cheaper. So if you see a thrombus on ultrasound, then the follow up would be a CT scan of the abdomen. Now in a patient without cirrhosis, we pick up this thrombus because the patient is presented with abdominal pain and therefore a CT scan has been carried out. So in the symptomatic patient, that is a patient with abdominal pain, it's typically not a Doppler, which is the first investigation that is carried out. So in general, ultrasound picks up a portal vein thrombosis, get a cross-sectional image done, usually a CT scan. If you think the patient might have portal vein thrombosis, start with an ultrasound examination. If the ultrasound examination demonstrates a thrombus, Confirm it on a CT scan because you're also looking for tumor thrombus there. If your suspicion for a thrombus is very high, the ultrasound is negative, then proceed with cross-sectional imaging again. So start off with an ultrasound. If you confirm the diagnosis, if you demonstrate a thrombus on ultrasound, confirm on a CT scan.
0: Great. So let's say, Patrick, that you identify somebody and you know it's an acute portal vein or acute mesenteric vein thrombosis because maybe they recently had some imaging for another reason and it wasn't there. What recommendations do you make for anticoagulation or thrombolytic therapy? We like to divide patients into those with cirrhosis and those without cirrhosis.
1: In patients with cirrhosis, we recommend anticoagulation if there's complete main portal vein thrombosis if there is mesenteric vein thrombosis or if the thrombosis started in the portal vein and is extending into the mesenteric veins. Extension into the mesenteric veins is always ominous because those patients are likely to have a higher risk of intestinal infarction. So we would anticoagulate those patients. Patients without cirrhosis are typically symptomatic, and that's the reason why imaging was carried out, and we would treat these patients. So start with anticoagulation, but if despite anticoagulation, the thrombus is extending and patient is getting more symptomatic, this would suggest that there might be intestinal ischemia setting in. You could consider thrombolytic therapy in these patients, but if the
0: situation is more dire, then these patients would need to go to surgery. If you identify that patient and you decide to initiate anticoagulation therapy for somebody with acute portal vein or mesenteric vein thrombosis, how long do you commit these patients to therapy? So there are two issues here, Brian. One is the duration of anticoagulation,
1: and I think the second is the choice of agent in these patients. So if this is a precipitated thrombus. For instance, a patient underwent abdominal surgery and then developed a portal vein thrombosis. So that is precipitated. And that patient had no thrombophilia, which was inherited, no myeloproliferative neoplasms, no hematological disease. So just a precipitated thrombus. In these patients, we would suggest at least six months of anticoagulation. If the patient has a thrombophilia, myeloproliferative neoplasm, hematological disorder, increasing the risk of clotting, then these patients require indefinite anticoagulation. The second issue here, and that's which is really very important, is which anticoagulant do we use? To initiate treatment, we would use heparin. For maintenance of anticoagulation, then it's warfarin or low molecular weight heparin. And there's some guidance as to how we should monitor these patients if they are on unfractionated heparin, APTT of 1.5 to 2.5, or an anti-10A level of 0.3 to 0.7. I have to emphasize, Brian, that, you know, these levels have not been validated in patients with portal thrombosis. If they're on low molecular weight heparin, then no monitoring is required, However, we cannot use low molecular weight heparin in patients with renal failure. If they're on warfarin, then the INR goal is somewhere between 2 and 3. In the acute situation when you use heparin, there is perhaps a theoretical advantage with low molecular weight heparin. So low molecular weight heparin binds to antithrombin, but does not bind to platelets and other proteins. And so it tends to be a safer agent than unfractionated heparin. So in these patients, we may use low-molecular-weight heparin. If they do not have renal failure, if they have renal failure, we would use heparin. Once the acute situation has been taken care of, we will maintain them on low-molecular-weight heparin or on warfarin.
0: Thank you. Great teaching points. Many of our listeners take care of patients with chronic portal vein thrombosis. Should these patients be treated with anticoagulants, or is it safe to just watch and wait? One very important
1: point uh, is that anticoagulation does not cause bleeding. Anticoagulation increases the severity of bleeding. So, if you do bleed and you're on anticoagulation, there's an increased risk of bleeding. Studies done from France show that in these patients, those who were on anticoagulation actually had a lower risk of varicell bleeding than those who were not on anticoagulation. So, if these patients require anticoagulation, then yes, we must go ahead and anticoagulate these patients. The issue is how do we go about this? If a patient has had chronic portal vein thrombosis and an associated thrombophilia or a previous history of intestinal ischemia, these patients require anticoagulation. If they've got chronic portal vein thrombosis, no thrombophilia, no previous history of ischemia. They do not require anticoagulation in them. We should be
0: concerned about variceal screening and treatment. In similar fashion to the prior question, if you have a patient with chronic portal vein thrombosis, um, how long would you keep that patient on therapy? So, Brian, again, we'd like to separate out patients with cirrhosis and
1: those without cirrhosis. If you recall, I'd said that hepatic dysfunction increases the risk of clotting. So, for instance, if you have a patient with cirrhosis and a chronic portavent thrombosis, but that patient is child Turcotte-Pugh class A, then it would be difficult to explain the thrombosis based on hepatic dysfunction alone. And we would suspect a thrombophilia in this patient. If the investigation shows that the patient has thrombophilia, then this patient requires long-term anticoagulation. If the patient is a candidate for liver transplantation, then there is some benefit in anticoagulation, and we would continue anticoagulation till the time of liver transplantation. If it's a child pu class B or C, then we recommend endoscopy for varices. We would not anticoagulate this patient. If you look at the patient without cirrhosis, Then we'll go over the history and find out whether they've had a previous history of intestinal ischemia or not. And we would also do a thrombophilia screen in these patients. So no thrombophilia, no previous intestinal ischemia, no need for anticoagulation. If they have a thrombophilia or if they've had a previous history of intestinal ischemia, in those patients we'd initiate anticoagulation. Additionally, in these patients with chronic portal vein thrombosis, we would recommend an endoscopy, a surveillance for esophageal varices. If they have large varices, then we require prophylactic treatment against variceal bleeding. If they do not have large varices, then we would repeat the endoscopy in
0: perhaps one to two years' time. That's a wonderful segue to the next patient I was thinking about, that of a patient with chronic portal vein thrombosis. What's the best approach for primary variceal bleeding prophylaxis? Is it the use of a beta blocker, or would you perform variceal band ligation? So anytime you considering primary prophylaxis for
1: variceal bleeding, the considerations are costs, convenience, and safety. So if a patient is not on anticoagulation, either variceal ligation or beta blockers is reasonable but then beta blockers are cheaper. If the patient is on anticoagulation, we would prefer beta blockers. Now, people have reported varicell ligation on anticoagulation and they say it is safe, but that experience is very limited. So, in general practice, there is interruption of anticoagulation in this periprocedural period, and that's not very good when you're treating a patient with venous thrombosis. So if they're on anticoagulation, we prefer not to interrupt the anticoagulation, and these patients should be on beta blockers. Having said that, some of these patients do not tolerate beta blockers or might have contraindications to beta blockers. And in them, of course, we would need to consider varicell ligation. And you may need to consider interrupting anticoagulation
0: around the time of the
1: procedure.
0: One of the very nice things about your guidelines, Patrick, is you focus on some very specific categories. And we started this discussion today with a brief mention of Bud Chiari syndrome. What about that patient with Bud Chiari and nuanced ascites? What's the best diagnostic test? Is it a Doppler, an ultrasound, or is it a contrast-enhanced CT or an MRI? So we suspect hepatic venous outflow tract obstruction in a patient who's got rapid onset
1: of ascites, right up quadrant discomfort, hepatomegaly, and liver test elevations. You know, acute right-sided cardiac failure or constrictive pericarditis can also give rise to this picture. So the initial test in this patient is. And ultrasound examination. If the suspicion was low for Bud Carey syndrome and the ultrasound is negative, then we don't need further investigation. However, when we get the ascites to be of rather rapid onset, especially with discomfort, then our suspicion is high. And even if the ultrasound is negative, we would go to cross-sectional imaging, typically a CT scan. Advantage of the CT scan is It can show you the extent of the thrombus, which the ultrasound may not show you as well. It can also show you whether there's a tumor or not. Now, patients with bud carry develop masses. Some of them are malignant. So, in patients with bud carry, if you see a nodule, then we would recommend that an MRI be carried out to evaluate the mass. So, Brian, to summarize, if you have suspicion for butt carry, start with an ultrasound, confirm with a CT scan. If your suspicion is high and the ultrasound is negative, go ahead with a CT scan.
0: If either of the images shows you the suspicion of a mass, get an MRI done. As we wind down our discussion, I want to present one other kind of specific topic. And sometimes as we evaluate patients with cirrhosis and or ascites, we identify a mesenteric artery aneurysm. What do we do in this situation? Does it matter whether the patients are symptomatic or asymptomatic? Is there a size criterion that should be used to determine an intervention? Yes, Brian, size and symptoms
1: determine the need for intervention. So we would recommend intervention in all patients with symptomatic aneurysms, and by symptoms we mean abdominal pain in the absence of any other explanation. We'd also recommend intervention if the aneurysm is greater than 2 centimeters in diameter, even if the patient is asymptomatic. And then we would recommend intervention if the aneurysms are growing. So that means if the aneurysm is less than 2 centimeters in diameter, we recommend follow-up imaging in 6 months' time. And if it's stable, then every year subsequently. And if we see growth, then we would recommend intervention again. Special group of patients is women of childbearing age, especially with splenic artery aneurysms. These have a high risk of rupture. So if the occasional patient with cirrhosis who gets pregnant and has a splenic artery aneurysm, even if less than 2 centimeters in diameter, we would recommend intervention there.
0: Patrick, this has really been a wonderfully educational conversation. Thank you. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Yes, Brian. You know, directly acting oral anticoagulants
1: are being increasingly used in cardiology and physicians are tending to use it in patients with Portland mesenteric vein thrombosis. I think these agents are promising. These are the thrombin inhibitors and the factor A inhibitors, but experience is still limited. So there are advantages with these agents. Traditionally, there's been no monitoring required, and there are no dietary restrictions in these patients. But there are concerns. We are not certain how well these agents are absorbed in the presence of intestinal edema, which you can get with portal vein thrombosis. We've had the occasional patient who the physician has put them on these agents. There's no monitoring. There's that false sense of security that this is working, and when they've come to us, they've got the entire small bowel that has been infarcted, and they've got to be on home TPN lifelong. So we want to make sure we avoid such situations. Till we get more experience with these agents, we recommend some monitoring for the action of these agents. So, with a thrombin inhibitor like debigatran, if the thrombin time is normal or if the APTT is normal, it means this drug is not working. If you're using the 10A inhibitors, for instance, apixaban or rivaroxaban, if you get a prothrombin time or 10A activity and these are normal, it rules out a substantial drug effect. So, I think we should intermittently monitor these patients just to make sure that the anticoagulation is effective. Remember, on warfarin, we are monitoring them, so we know whether it's working or not. In these, we are assuming it's working, but we don't know for sure. In the future, we may be using more and more of these drugs, and in the future, we might say we don't require monitoring, but till such time, we get
0: more experience. I think we have to be careful in using these drugs. Patrick, once again, thank you for our listeners. If you've not had time yet to read this, the article in the January 2020 edition of the American Journal of Gastroenterology has some wonderful tables, wonderful figures, and some very concise guideline statements that you can use in clinical practice. Once again, thank you. We really appreciate it, Patrick. Thank you so much again, Brian.